Hello. Just before we begin this week's episode, I wanted to tell you some really exciting news. We've hit one million downloads. I know. Can you believe it? It just blows my mind. What started out as a dream has become a dream come true. A little podcast about El Camino de Santiago, the ancient pilgrimage in Spain, has changed my life. And a very special thank you to my Patreon sponsors, because without them, the podcast would not be possible. And I also want to thank the more than 300 guests who've told me their amazing, incredible, inspiring stories. But most importantly, thank you. Thank you for pressing play each week. Thank you all. Let's get into this week's episode. Buen Camino. Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. The Camino is all about discovery. You'll walk through sleepy villages that come to life in your imagination. You'll meet people from all around the world, people who'll inspire you, and you'll meet people who'll encourage you. We all know someone who was going to stop walking, and then they met someone who encouraged them to keep going. And often the person who was struggling will run into their Camino Angel in Santiago de Compostela, and it's just the best coming together of celebration and achievement. And the Camino is all about sharing and caring for yourself and for others. And I wonder about that kindness. The American writer Barbara DeAngelis said, Love and kindness are never wasted. They always make a difference. They bless the one who receives them. And they bless you, the giver. And I've said here on the podcast countless times that the Camino is a metaphor for life. You have good days and you have bad days. Days when you just want to stay in bed. Days when you feel you could climb the highest mountain effortlessly. But other days when you just can't seem to put one foot in front of the other. And so there are times when kindness helps. Some days when you need a Camino angel to appear from nowhere to lead you, to inspire you, to show love and kindness. Well, my guest this week is a hospice chaplain, working with people who are dying, who know they're going to die. And that's someone who leads them, inspires them, and shows them love and kindness. Chad Estes is on the line from Idaho in the United States. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be a part of your show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you because I'm sure you have a million stories to tell. But let me begin by asking how you ended up a hospice chaplain. Well, I spent years uh, in the ministry working in various churches. And uh, after, a, after a while, after doing that for about 12 years, um, I found myself outside of the organized church and working on other projects, and that included photography and storytelling. Hmm. And it's kind of a long story, um, but I found myself working with people who had what I called scar stories, things that had happened to them physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, where we were able to provide them a safe place to share their story and um, write about their story, take pictures if it was appropriate, and then find the right avenue to share that with other people if those people wanted to. And that took me into the 
areas of uh, breast cancer and breast cancer advocacy, as well as um, I started doing work for an uh, organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which sends professional photographers into hospitals when uh, a baby is passed, um, oh. either late term, late term uh, pregnancy or right after birth. And that way we're able to give the family these legacy portraits that they wouldn't have otherwise. And after doing that for, for several years, um, being around death and dying and advocating for those patients, um, I had a friend who was a hospice chaplain and I asked him if he ever needed a backup. And he told me he was actually looking for someone to help him out, that his hours were, were extended and he needed to, to have a break. And uh, within a few days, I was meeting with his boss and they offered me a part-time job. And later that same year, they offered me a full-time job. I've been doing it for four years now. And uh, it's a fantastic fit for, for me. And I, I expect to keep doing this until I retire someday. I'm sure you get asked this all the time. What's it like to be with people just before they die? Well, you know, a lot of people think that this is a really hard job. They, you know, they, they say, wow, how can, how can you do that? And I will admit there's days that, that I wake up and I have to come to terms with everybody that I'm working right now is, is on their way out They're mm. They're planning to pass. Um, and yet the, the reality is, is these people are at a stage in their life where they're very reflective and their time means a lot to them. And so getting to interact with them um, and help them process what this means as their life is coming to, a, to an end, it is such a privileged place to be. And uh, it's, I feel very honored to get to spend that time with, with those people and, um, and help them find value in what they're going through. Um, it's, I bet you get asked this question a lot too. Do many people leave the hospice to go home or is it pretty much all one-way traffic? So our, yeah, our hospice, probably half of my patients are in facilities where they need specialized care yeah. and the other half are in their homes. And that's one of the great things about hospice is allows those that who want to be home to be able to be home and have, have that kind of care so people can pass at home. Um, but often we do have people, we call it graduate, that they graduate off of our services because they get better. Wow. Sometimes when they stop those uh some of the procedures that they were doing to extend their life and they start getting off some of those medications. Sometimes we find that they really respond well to that. And uh, we do graduate people off of hospice care and, um, and then we'll come back if they need us later. Huh. We farewelled a very dear friend of mine, Gary, uh, last week. He was one of Sydney's uh -huh. best and most loved jazz musicians, a piano player. And he had been in a hospice for quite some time and they sent him out to a nursing home afterwards and everyone was delighted. And then he caught COVID and COVID oh. ended up taking his life, which was just so heartbreaking after everything you'd been I'm, through. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. I, I had a very hard time with COVID and having some patients that passed of that instead of the things that they had actually come on to, to hospice for. And that was very difficult for, uh, for our team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us how the Camino came into your life, Chad. Mm. Well, it, it actually came through my wife, Jamie. We can't remember exactly how she first heard about it, um, but she's been wanting to do this walk for over 20 years. Wow. And uh, we really didn't 
I, I don't think I really caught that vision until we sat down and watched the movie The Way together. And she said, hey, this is what I was talking about. And, and being able to see, see those pictures and hear that story just made us want to put action, you know, to, to those dreams. And uh, so we started planning, you know, when, when would we do this? When would be a good time? And, you know, we're busy raising our family and yet all of our kids, we have four children and all of them are adults and, and doing their thing. And uh, we started looking and when would this be possible? And Jamie says, you know, I would like to do it before I turn 60. So we, we looked to do that. Um, but then COVID hit and we had to set it off a year. And so we got to do the first half of the Camino um, while she was 60 and she had her birthday in the middle of it. And then uh, the second half while she was 61. But the great thing about the timing was that our two daughters, one has is a travel nurse and she had just finished a year long assignment in Saudi Arabia and she was able to join us. And our other daughter had just finished a six year contract with the US Navy and she was in transition and she was able to join us. So all four of us got to do the Camino together. Oh, how fantastic. How it was wild. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you're on this journey with your, with your wife and, and your two daughters, and I'm sure you're experiencing what we were talking about earlier, and that is uh, the love and the, and the kindness of the Camino and the, that, that great opportunity to sort of re, restart and renew and re-energize. How has the Camino helped in your work as a hospice chaplain, do you think? I mostly tried to set my job aside um, and really be with my family. Mm. But I had, I had one circumstance that um, really has impacted my life as a chaplain. Um, we did the Portuguese Camino. And uh, when, when we decided to do that, we looked in, and Jamie wanted a longer Camino. So we started in Lisbon. We didn't know you know, what to expect, except that we would have some long days. And uh, we did those, we basically had at least 30 kilometer days until we got to Porto. And um, there's lots of stories in those days. And we loved, absolutely loved those, those weeks together. Mm. Um, but it was, it was probably about two thirds of the way through that journey. Um, we realized that the markers had changed a bit on the route. Um, those first few weeks, all we had seen was, you know, yellow arrows. And uh, they were plentiful, and we were able to, you know, maneuver our way just fine with them. But once we started getting closer to Spain and into Spain, um, then the markers started having mileage on them. And those first couple times that we saw the kilometers that were left, um, we weren't really sure how to take that. And... So my daughter, Kona, she looked it up. I said, so if we've got, you know, 180 kilometers, you know, left, mm. what, is that, what does that mean in context of how far we've gone? And um, she looked it up and she says, well, Dad, we've, we've gone over 400 kilometers. And um, we really had a reaction to that. Um, mm. Part of it was that, um, you know, maybe we'd be excited that we were over halfway there or two thirds of the way there. But I, I think we were kind of stunned to realize that we were closer to the end than we were to the beginning. Mm. Yeah. And um, we continued to see these markers going down with the amount of kilometers that were left. And I kept finding myself having a, a reaction to every time I saw one. And, and um, 
we also realized that the other people that were walking near us um, weren't necessarily having the same reaction. And that's because some of them had just started in Porto. So here where we're looking at a sign that says that we're two thirds of the way done, um, they're not even half the way done. They may be looking at those kilometers and since they didn't start out with as many to do, um, it still feels like they've got a long, long time to walk and a lot of kilometers to do. And um, it dawned on me that this could be how some of my patients feel, um, that the signs that they're seeing, um, they're towards the end. Mm. And their reactions to the times and the seasons and their birth date or an anniversary or a holiday, um, while everyone else may be very excited about it, they may realize that it's their last one. And so I, I took that understanding back. I think it helped me with my empathy to realize that that the people that I'm interacting with, um, we all may interact with those those days and those things like I shared differently. And so I'm just more open to that. I think I'm more sensitive to that with with my patients. And I'm really thankful that the Camino gave that to me. That's a fantastic answer. That is just outstanding. Wow, how wonderful. And what a wonderful insight from somebody who sees people nearing the end of their their journey, their mm-hmm. pilgrimage of life. Yeah, amazing. You know I do my research for this podcast, Chad. I saw a picture of you on social media and the post read, this is Chad Estes. Maybe I would describe him as a storytelling photographer. He, with his wife, Jamie, interview women to hear their stories. Then he photographs them in their vulnerability, be it breast cancer, stretch marks, etc. Currently, his project is self-image. In the process of meeting with Chad, women are finding a beautiful sense of self-strength, freedom, and healing. Now, you touched on this earlier. Tell us about that journey. Mm. Well, when, when I was no longer earning a paycheck in the ministry, um, I decided I'd fall back on, on my photography, and it's something that I've done for a long time. Um, my dad had taught me photography since I was a young child, and, and uh, I'd had a dark room and used his film, photogra- his wow. film camera, and, and he had built me a dark room in our home, and so I really enjoyed that. And, um, but, but during the time I'd gone to school and been in the ministry, everything had gone digital. Um, the nice thing was is Nikon left their mounts the same when they went to digital photography. So all I needed was a new body. I was still able to use some of my lenses. So I got back into photography and thought I'd, I'd start looking at um, how I wanted to to form a business. And what I realized is I really wanted to tell stories. I, I didn't want to be a fashion photographer. I didn't want to be a wedding photographer. Um, I wanted to connect with people and help them tell their stories, maybe using writing and the, and the photography um, in conjunction with each other. And uh, it's, it's a long story, but in the process of putting some of my images out on a website, I saw a photograph um, of a woman. It was a Portuguese photographer who had taken a portrait of a woman who'd had a single breast mastectomy. And I interacted with him about the photo because there was just a lot of, uh, even though her face wasn't in it, there was a lot of emotion and storytelling in this image. And I interacted with him about it. And um, it started a conversation with my wife and I, um, and then with some of my friend, our friends that had gone through breast cancer. And uh, 
at the time, um, two of those three friends asked me if maybe they, if maybe I would help them share their story sometime. Yeah. And uh, at the time, I really saw breast cancer as well. This is a this is a woman's disease, and I really don't have any any right to you know project myself into the into the middle of it. I'm not medically trained. Um, I just curious what my friends went through, but I, I don't think I'm the right person to do that. Um, but I did because of what they shared, started doing other scar stories. And it included my mom who'd gone through um, a brain tumor that had severed uh, one of the nerves to her face. And uh, at the time I was in my early twenties, I was just thankful that my mom had survived. Um, I don't, I had not taken into consideration the trauma that she went through as it really affected her body image. And it wasn't until, you know, these years later that I started interacting with her um, about what that had cost her. And uh, she opened up to me and shared with me. And um, I asked if I could take her portrait. And um, I did so. And when she saw the results, we just used some natural lighting that was coming into my front room. And uh, she told me, oh, she says, you've, you've altered this photo. Hmm. And I said, I haven't. And she says, well, you Photoshopped it or something. And I said, no, I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> and um, she, is, she had tried to hide that side of her face in photos for years. And um, the picture meant so much to her that um, we ended up blowing it up, blowing it up very large and, and uh, putting some of her story on top of it in text. And she entered it into an art show in, uh, in her church. And she would stand beside it and people would interact with her about her story. And I just saw the freedom that it gave her and the healing that it provided her. So I continued to do these stories and I was posting them on a blog that I had at the time. And um, I decided I wanted to tell the story of where this all started. And so I contacted this uh, photographer from Portugal and asked him for permission to share that portrait on my, on my blog. And um, the, his response was, Chad, because you want to use this image for noble purposes, you have my permission. Wow. And uh, I, I really appreciated that, that statement. We were having to use Google Translate back and forth. Um, and then he said, um, the woman in the photograph is my wife. And then he went on to share how beautiful he saw his wife, even though she only had one breast. And um, it was, it, I just had a, I still have an emotional response to, to the story. Um, but I knew at that time that, um, that I needed to do a project on breast cancer. And um, so I didn't know how to go about that. It took a while. Um, it took some of those friends that had gone through it themselves, but about a year and a half later, we did our first art show in a local studio in downtown Boise with eight women who revealed their scars and shared their stories. And I got to see the freedom and the healing that it brought for all of them um, to have an opportunity to share their story. And so we continued on with that project and um, it got me into writing about breast cancer and advocating and even getting politically involved. Um, and at the same time, my wife, after seeing the results that were happening, because a lot of the stories dealt with body image as well, uh, my wife suggested that 
um, I'd also do a project on on body image, and it took me a few years to kind of find the uh, the right avenue to do that. But we found a um, a studio space and a project idea. It was called the Vitruvian Woman, and um, I had about fifty women um, share their body image stories and pose for photos, and we had a rotating. Uh, art show around that that unfortunately had to get shut down because of COVID. Um, but I got to see it impact a lot of people, both those that participated as well as those people who came and interacted with the with the art show. So this is now what's called the reveal mission, right? That's right. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I call it. Um, all of those projects are, you know, I kind of put under that. Mm. Um, I've never made it a, a nonprofit as I'm not looking to make money on it it's just all kind of self self-funded um collecting money for the that kind of work seemed seemed like it would get in the way of it yeah so it's been nice to have the the job as a chaplain that is bringing in my my income so that i can just donate my time to projects like the, you know the projects that we do with the reveal mission and kind of the idea with the reveal mission and the logo that i have for that is is uh is a bandage being lifted lifted off? Um, you know, sometimes we we cover up these wounds because we don't want them to be infected, but we don't. We're not supposed to leave those bandages on for the rest of our lives. At some point, those have to come off and be exposed to air and oxygen for them to continue to heal and for those scabs to become scars. And uh, so that's the idea: is to um, in the right in the right timing. Um, with the right vulnerability, with the right safety, um, giving people those opportunities to to reveal their stories and uh, for the purpose of them healing even more, as well as yeah. educating people that would get to interact with those stories. Wow, what a great story! I wonder about the family, Chad. Um, mm. A family of some of, of one of these women. How do they react? Are they because it's? I guess their mother or their sister or, 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 or their daughter's journey in a sense is part of their journey. And yeah. you, you will have you will have dealt with a lot of this in terms of your hospice chaplaincy as well. How do families react to their loved ones sharing their stories? Um, mostly what I've experienced is people have been very positive with it. I remember one woman who, uh, who was in that very first art show that we did that she had her whole family come to see her uh, her photo and read the story that we hung underneath it. And then she took them all um, over to the a restaurant that was that was next door to set them all down and tell them more about her story that she had never revealed to them before. And um, she used the project as kind of that jumping off place to do that. Um, another woman that I interacted with I actually had worked with her years before and we saw each other at a at a, a meeting for people that were going through cancer and she was and she found out about my project and asked to be involved and um, we always take the I always take these portraits where these people want to take them whether it's a studio or at their home or outside and also with who whoever they want in those photos whether it's alone or with someone else, I kind of let them direct direct that. Um, and she asked me to come to her house, and she wanted the picture with her and her husband in it. And um, we we took those photos, and it was an emotional time. 
and um, she also wanted her daughters in uh, in the photos as well. Um, but she had not been able to show her daughters her scars, and so again, she used this this photo shoot opportunity um, that gave her the courage to take her daughters by the hands and take them into the other room and to show her her scars for the first time. And uh, I just sat back amazed at seeing what was happening, and um, and then they decided not to put those those photos. They decided that were going to be just for them and their family. Mm. But the, uh, a few months later, um, that woman and her two daughters, their faces were up on a billboard together for a local cancer run that we were going to do. And um, it was just so fantastic to see the freedom that had come to them. And now their faces were plastered on billboards all over town. Wow. And I don't think that would have happened if, if we hadn't have done the reveal project for them to start with. So, um, yeah, I get to see great, great opportunities for families and, uh, and for those people that I'm working with and advocating for as well. I knew I was going to enjoy talking to you because beneath that picture of you that I'd seen someone posted, I love this man and his heart and his art. Hmm. How and why do you think have you chosen a life of love and kindness first with your, with your preaching and then, and now this chaplaincy, this work with the reveal mission, why? Why have you chosen this life of love and kindness? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it centers on my faith. Um, you know, and I, re I realized that uh, a, a pastor who takes pictures of, of people's bodies um, in various states of undress is not what most people are, are <laughs> doing, right? And, uh, and yet it, it's funny you know, when I, when I asked my wife about it, when we started out on these projects, um, I asked Jamie, I said, you know, what do you think of me doing this? You know, this is kind of awkward. This is kind of different. And um, she says, well, Chad, she says, I'm a nurse, right? And I said, well, of course. She goes, and you know that I see people's bodies all of the time. And I said, well, yes, of course. And she says, but I also touch them and clean them and give them shots and everything else. And, and I said, well, sure, of course. She goes, have you ever challenged me on that, if whether it was a correct thing to do or not? And I said, well, no, <laughs> it's, what you're, it's what you're trained to do. And she said, that's right. She goes, I'm a professional. And she said, and Chad, you're a professional, so go out and do your job. Wow. And uh, so it's with, it was with that understanding from my own family and my wife um, that I've been able to get into some of those vulnerable places that I never saw myself um going but that i see so rewarding and uh and another part of it too is walking into this with without an agenda um if this is centered around the people that i'm working for um then they have to have control of their stories mm. and so i don't have anyone sign a contract that says these photos belong to me or the recordings belong to me or they are going to be used in in this art show or not. Um, you know, what I tell them is that they'll get to see and edit and uh, be a part of this. We're partnering together on these things. And I think that's one of the things that builds the trust for, for people to even begin to share their stories with me. And um, I don't know. I feel like I've been given a lot. And this is one of the ways that I get to give back. Wow. And you are. It's so fantastic. I just want to return to the 
the hospice chaplaincy again. Do we ever really anticipate what we'll feel when one of our loved one dies? Mm-hmm. You know, grief is very individual and we do bereavement care for for families for, you know, usually up to a year after their loved one passes. So, right. you know, our care for our care for that family does not end with when their when their family member passes. And sometimes that includes helping them with a memorial or um, sometimes it means coming to grief groups. Sometimes it means just continuing to show up at their house and help them talk through what they're going through and to validate their feelings. And all of them are different. Um, you know, and they, they all need different, they all need different things. Um, but that's, that's part of the privilege too, is helping them, helping them walk through that. I do have a fun story of, of, uh, of a family that, um, they knew that I was going to be going on this journey and uh, the patient's name was George and George was getting ready to turn 90. And George um, was very involved in the Boy Scouts of America uh, and led lots of, of troops on all sorts of hikes and travels and backpacking. And he was just fascinated to hear about this pilgrimage that, that Jamie and, and my girls and I were doing together. And uh, he would have, he would have done anything, you know, if he had the health to do something like that. And he passed before I left. And his wife asked me if uh, she goes, I know that you are trying to limit the weight that you're carrying, but could you carry a symbol of George um, with you on, on this trip? And she had this little wooden chip that had a cross on it and, and a saying on the back. And, and I said, I would, I would, feel very privileged to take George with me. And so I was already carrying um, some memorable things from my family. Um, my mother's uh, parents were Catholic and had a Catholic background. And I had um, my grandfather's rosary um, that I carried with me. And my dad's parents were Protestant. And uh, that grandfather was a woodworker. And he had made a, a small cross and a dove that I used to wear as a, as a child around my neck on a necklace. And uh, I had those in my pouch as well. And uh, so I, I put George's little wood piece in there. And I would take them out along the way and think of all of these, these gentlemen. And, uh, but what I also had, um, George, we got to celebrate his 90th birthday. And one of the things I love doing is you know, offering my photography services to our patients and their families. And so I take pictures at family gatherings and at birthdays and anniversaries and get to do those last, last family gathering portraits, you know. And um, so he was having this big 90th birthday and we took lots of photos that day. And I had taken a picture of him and his wife, Shailene. And um, uh, I uh, got it printed and laminated it. And I use it as my bookmark in my John Briarly guide. And uh, the reason that I took that is um, I knew that Shailene wanted George to go with me, but I also knew in all of the years since they've been married that George had drugged Shailene on all of these adventures as well. And so if Shailene was asking me to take George, I knew George would be asking me to take Shailene. (laughs) And so um, it was, I don't know where, where we were in Portugal, but we came upon one of these, uh, one of these areas where people had left, you know, it was on the top of a hill and people had left all of these mementos and yeah. stones and, 
and letters and and memories of their of their loved ones and i was taking my pieces out to remember remember george and my grand my grandparents and and i could not find george's chip and it was gone and i looked through all through my backpack and it was gone and i was just heartbroken that shailene entrusted me with this piece and um that i was not going to be able to return it to her and um and I'd taken pictures of it in front of the cathedral before we left. And I'd taken, you know, and then I, I was going to take a picture of it that day. And um, so I was dreading going back and telling her, but I thought at least I've got this picture that I, I get to give her, give back to her. And when I got home, um, we sat down to, they, this family actually waited for my family to return from the Camino to do the memorial, to do George's memorial. They wanted me to officiate that. And so I sat down with Shailene and I told her that that the chip was gone, that it had it had, you know, was no longer in my backpack. I went to reach for it. And she said, Oh, that sounds just like George. He would jump out in Portugal and have his own adventure. And it sounds just right that that it got it got left there. That's crazy. and I so I so appreciated her response to that. But then I pulled out the picture and I said, But George had you come along this trip as well. And uh, that portrait that went the whole Camino route is now up on, on her mantelpiece with both of their faces smiling big on it. And uh, I get to see it whenever I go over and, and have my meetings with her. Wow. Great story. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Oh, there's so much I'm dying to ask you, but let's get back to the Camino. And cast your mind back, Chad, in this all this work you do, this love and kindness. What did you learn about yourself on the Camino? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, I really went into this knowing that this was Jamie's dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so glad that we got to, to go with her and to see that happen. Um, you know, and we designed it uh, with the length that she needed and the time that she needed and the places to stay where she needed and I it was somewhere along that journey that I realized that um, I was I was in the mode of a of a caretaker for both my wife and my girls I was you know being the the dad and being the the husband and uh, I realized you know I wonder if I would have I could get even more out of this journey if I didn't have these roles and responsibilities. And when I suggested that to the three of them, all of them said, yeah, dad, you need to come back. You need to do this just you. And it made me realize that I can hide behind my roles and my responsibilities and um, that it would be good to go without all of those. And so I've planned a second trip to do just that. And so I'll return to the Camino in June. I'll actually do the Frances and I'm being very intentional about that trip and and what it will and what it will look like, but I felt like on this first journey, I really got four four directions um, that and that's why I want to go back and follow up on those. The first one was to be present, mm-hmm. and you know the that concept of being here now. Um, it's, it's easy to live looking over your shoulder and regret, and it's easy to look too far forward into the future. Um, 
and it lets your energies be there instead of just being right where you are. In fact, I thought about it the other day. Um, Jamie and I spent probably seven months, you know, walking and getting ready for the Camino and all of that preparation was great, but a lot of it was directed to when we get to the Camino, you know, and yeah. it was all projected out. And I find that when I go out and walk now, I'm, I'm walking not because I'm heading back and I'm in training. Now I'm walking for the day and now I'm processing what's going on today. So I use the, I use my daily walks now to process the patients that I met with that day and my interactions with them and um, I hold space for them and that's when I'm praying for them. And uh, so I'm, I learned to be more present um, in the Camino. The second part is learning to be still and, uh, the verse that, you know, pops out of me is be still and know that I'm God. And uh, what, what, really came, what really came to me over and over is um, I like control. I like to know how things are or how they're going to be. And when things don't go my way, I can, I can try to take control of that. And uh, some of the biggest lessons I learned was to, to let that go. Mm. Um, and I, I still need a lot of work on that. Um, but I, I have a story, an example of that, if we have time. Yeah, of course. Um, so this was after we had, uh, got to Porto and new, new pilgrims were joining there. And, uh, we met, uh, these three pilgrims that were starting there from the Netherlands. And, uh, one of them was, there was a married couple and then a coworker. And one of the women was, uh, pediatric nurse and that's both what my wife has been and one of my daughters is and so they had lots in common so they'd walk together and talk and and the other two walked faster than the four of us turtles so we'd see them at the coffee shops or in town in the evening and interact with them there and we were just developing good good friendships with them and we we came around a corner one afternoon and saw the three of them and one of the women was on the ground she had slipped off an embankment and hit her head and there was a puddle of blood and um we didn't know if she had a concussion or if her if her time on the camino was over and if it was you know were the other two would they have to go back as well and uh the the local people were fantastic that came to to help her with her needs and got an ambulance and got her to the hospital and but we kind of walked away from that kind of just in shock and stunned that we we haven't since we've been walking together there was no need yet to exchange our contact information um we figured we would do that later um but now we'll never know what happened to her yeah and uh so i'll jump i'll jump forward in the story we got to uh we were going to spend a rest day between the the last uh, town in in Portugal and the first one in Spain. So our our goal was to go to Valencia de Minho and spend an evening there, and then the next morning we would get up and just walk across the river and stay the day in Tui. That way we'd be able to see both towns. And I made the wrong reservations and um, the the hostel where we were going to stay contacted me and said, where are you? And I said, well, we'll be there tomorrow. And they said, but your reservations are for tonight. And so I had made a mistake on the date and they did not have 
room for us the following night. So we ended up having to walk into Tui. And as we walked through um, Valencia, Domingo, um, all three of the girls were like, oh, wow, this is this is really neat. We love this old castle and the ruins and and the shops and and this would be great to stay here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I blew it. We were supposed to. And uh, but we can come back tomorrow. And so we found a place in Tui to stay. Um, but my daughter was having some trouble with blisters. And so my hope was that once we got to Tui and spent the night, we'd be able to get a, an Uber or a taxi to go back across. We were only about two miles out. Um, but to be able to get a taxi to go back into Portugal. And uh, when we got up that day, um, we could not find a ride. And uh, we tried over and over to find it and ended up, we had to walk back. And I was very upset, upset that we couldn't find transportation, upset that Bonnie was going to have to walk on a day where her feet really needed rest. Yeah. Um, I already had beaten myself up that we didn't get to stay in this town. Now we're walking back because I made the mistake. And uh, so I wasn't very pleasant on those two miles back into Portugal. Bonnie was hurting because her feet and the blisters. And uh, we walk across the bridge and um, you go through this, this tunnel back up into the castle. And just as we're walking into the castle, those three pilgrims are starting their way down. Oh. We had this glorious reunion and hugging each other and holding each other and laughing and crying and she's okay and she didn't have you know she had a pretty big gash but she was okay to walk and she didn't have a concussion and her knee was okay and her arm was okay and and it dawned on me that if i had had my way if we'd have stayed where i wanted to stay or if we had got the ride that i wanted to get we never would have seen them wow we never would have seen them. And so the miracle that the Camino gave me that day was to say, hey, when things don't go your way, maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's something in store for you that you couldn't have comprehended. And can you just be still? Let God be God. Yeah. Not try to over control it. And, and just receive what the day has for you. Wow. That's... So that was that was my second lesson. Uh, the third one, which I'll probably focus more on this trip, is learning just to be secure in myself. Um, and the fourth one is to be intentional. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons that I'm going back, is I'm intentionally trying to pursue these things that the Camino gave me. I felt like they gave me the bones of what I need to work on in my life, and I just need to go back and hang some of the the muscles and, and flesh and the guts to how, how do I do this? How do I walk this out in my life? And so I'm glad the Camino isn't over. It's just begun. What would you say to somebody thinking of walking the Camino? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Um, yeah. You know, don't, don't let it be a, a dream. Don't let it be a bucket list. Let it be a, a memory, let it be something that you can reflect on each day. I mean, I, I don't go a day without thinking of our trip. Um, and, you know, I, I bought the girls all digital uh, photo frames for Christmas. And so all of our photos, you know, cycle through each day and all of those thoughts and, and uh, from the times that we were there, the smells, the memories, the meals, um, yeah. the friends, 
it just all comes back and and i just love having that a part of my life and and amazing to to have that experience with with my loved ones too um you know i can't wait to do more more caminos with them i know i need to go do this one by myself i need to walk across the meseta and let it work its magic on me but i can't wait to do more uh, more caminos with my family fantastic Oh, how exciting. Cast your mind back and you, you just mentioned that you, you go, don't go a day without thinking about it. Is there a favorite place on the Camino Portuguese that you thought, oh, mm-hmm. this is perfect? You know, a, a lot of the things we read said, oh, if this is your first Camino, don't start in Lisbon. It's, it's too hard. It's too long. Oh. But I knew my wife, she wanted a longer Camino. So I, I said, well, we can do it, but it looks like that the, you know, that the facilities, the help may be a little bit spread out. We'd have to do longer days. And um, they were all up for that. And, and honestly, when we trained, it felt like, you know, we can, we can walk 10 kilometers. And if you take a break, half hour, an hour, especially if you get some fuel, you can walk another 10 more yeah. or five more or six more. And so all of us just said, we'll just keep, taking breaks as we need to so that we can get as far as we need to go. Um, but then the, the most wonderful thing, I was on a Facebook group of people that had done the Portuguese Camino from Lisbon. I said, those of you who've done Lisbon to Porto, if you had an extra day um, to, you know, as a day off, where would you have stayed? And three towns uh, were kept popping up, um, Santarém, Tomar, and Coimbra. Right, And so I went into this thinking, you know, we planned to have rest days, but I was going to do the biblical model. We walk six days and then we take a day of rest and then right. we walk six days and take a day of rest. And um, I thought, oh, I need to think outside of my box. And what if we took rest days in Santarem, Tomar and Coimbra? And but that would mean walking the first three days and taking a day off, only walking two more days and taking a day off. And then walking three days and taking a day off. That ended up being so perfect for us. It's what our bodies needed. It's what our spirits needed. And to get to see that side of Portugal, those places, um, we just absolutely loved. I can't imagine having done that and not being able to spend time in those places and get to interact with the people and see more of the culture. And... um, so those three on that journey, I just loved. Fantastic. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. Yeah, that's definitely on my bucket list. I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to do it. I just have a couple of other questions I'd love to ask you about your work as a hospice chaplain, if you don't sure. mind. If you don't mind. I don't know if I'm framing this right, but if I have an illness that I, that I have for quite some time, Am I dying for years or am I only dying for a few moments, those last few breaths? That's a, that's, that's a really good question. You know, all of us are terminal. Um, it's appointed to us all yeah. to pass someday, right? Um, and certainly we, we have ailments that affect us in, in some small ways and some, some larger ways. Um, I think the the biggest thing about hospice is most most Western medicine is all about trying to get people better 
And what hospice is, at least in the United States, it's when that patient has decided to no longer seek treatment to try to combat that disease, but instead they go into comfort care. And so the goal is their comfort, not them getting better. And so there's this realization that I'm no longer fighting this. And I think that can, that can offer people that opportunity to pursue, to pursue peace instead of physical healing. And that can be a very beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to see my little brother who was dying of cancer and I actually didn't realize he was in a hospice. Uh, I, oh. I I didn't know. It wasn't until my sister said uh, we wanted to take him to see his dog um, because we couldn't bring the dog into the, to the mm. hospital. And I said, um, and then they said, oh, yeah, you can take him home, but bring him back to the hospice this afternoon. And I said, wait a minute, is this a hospice? I didn't even realize. Oh. And that's when it occurred to me, holy smokes. He's gonna, he's gonna die. It was just, it was a real realization for me, um, and I, I, it was weird. I was with him the night where he died, but I left fifteen minutes mm. before he actually died. I spent all night there with him, holding his hand and telling him stories, and and inexplicably, I went home. I still can't explain it. I beat myself up about it still today. I can't make sense of it. So, how do loved ones reconcile mm. their regrets? Mm. Let let me go back to what you said about your brother and him passing too. We see this all the time that we have a patient that we think is, you know, right there at the end. And for whatever reason, they won't go. And we can't medically figure it out because they're not taking in sustenance anymore. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's nothing that we're doing to try to keep them going but they haven't let go. And then a grandson flies in who just got off of his college term. And once the grandson gets there and tells his grandma goodbye, then she passes. Yeah, right. And so there's some of these, there's some of these people that are waiting. Um, my mom's best friend passed uh, just this last week. And um, Again, I thought she could have passed a few days before she did. She ended up passing on the anniversary of her mom's passing that had happened, I think, 17 or 18 years wow. before. Wow. And sometimes we see families or patients do that, that it's it's a date, it's something special before they go. And then we also see those patients that they won't go if there's anybody else there. And um, I had that experience happen um, with a, with a woman and her dad and she had moved into the facility with him and she would not leave his side and um she asked for help one day because she had to go take care of some business issues and so both myself um the chaplain and you know and our social worker the two of us went and she left and while she was gone he passed and um she you know we had to make that hard phone call because she wanted to be there and yet, as soon as we got her on the phone, she said, is he gone? And we said, I, I'm sorry. Yes, he is. And she goes, I knew it. I knew he was just waiting for me not to be there so he could go. And I'm not sure what that motivation was, but sometimes our loved ones, they have some designs on how and when they want to go. And that's what's important to them. And um, we try to honor that. 
So I, I hope you don't see, uh, you don't continue to feel regret about your brother going when he did. He went when he needed to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> no. Does it? No. Does no, it doesn't. No. No. What about what about me? Should I be scared of dying? Well, not from what I've experienced. Um, it's I I don't understand it, um, but I I see peace on people, and I they it's it's amazing seeing people that are at the end and they are seeing things that I can't see and they're experiencing things that I'm not experiencing, um, but I don't doubt it at all. Yeah. And, um, and I just, I know there's more out there for us. I don't know what that looks like. That's why it's called faith. Um, but I'm not afraid when this life is over and I'm not afraid for my loved ones either. Fantastic. Oh my gosh, Chad, it's been just such a delight talking to you. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that aspect of your life because it's so inspiring it is full of love and kindness just just amazing let's finish with something that brings us both true joy tell us okay. a camino story um, i've i've got one that's full of that's one that's full of joy i think i mentioned earlier that jamie was selling or celebrating her birthday right in the middle of this and uh, our neighbors that live in the house right behind us had been to porto um, and had told us about this restaurant that had this wonderful dessert and they said, when, when you go, you've, you've got to go to this restaurant. And so once we got to Porto, so this is the day before Jamie's birthday, but it was, the, it was our day off and we were, we were celebrating her birthday on that day off in Porto. And um, so I look up the restaurant and I try to make reservations for dinner and it's booked out solid for a month. Mm. And I'm like, oh, we, I, don't, I don't know how we can do this, but then, um, I think I called them or maybe there was something on their website that said um, that they have, Oh, I think I did. I called them and they let me know that they have some tables outside of the restaurant that are just for walk-ins. And she says, so just come and line up and, and you can see if you can get a table outside. So we had decided to eat somewhere else for dinner, but we were going to go there for this dessert that, you know, our neighbors had said was the best dessert they'd ever had. <laughs> and it was this peanut foam dessert. And we get there, I think an hour before they open the doors and there is already a line outside the door. And we're counting the tables and looking at the people in front of us. And sure enough, once they started seating people, the very last table was full and they come to us and they said, I'm sorry, we're, were full, um, both with the reservations and with the open tables. And um, I said to the lady, well, is it possible to get dessert for takeaway? Hmm. And she said, you know, she said, well, possibly why? I said, well, we're celebrating my wife's birthday and our friends from back home in Idaho told us to come here and have this dessert. And um, so if, if we're not able to have it here, is it something that we could get to take away? And she said, well, let's see, you don't really need to sit down to enjoy a dessert, do you? <laughs> and we kind of looked at each other and said, no. And she goes, well, then come in. <laughs> and so the four of us are standing around. We're in the way of the waiters. We're in the way of the, of the hostess, but they made room for us. And the four of us stood there and they made our desserts for us. 
and then they sang happy birthday to Jamie in English. And then the whole restaurant sang it to her in Portuguese. And we got to have our dessert there. And it was the most wonderful moment. And Jamie just felt so loved. And again, one of those things of I could have been upset because it wasn't going to happen the way I wanted. And the way it happened was just so beautiful. <laughs> and then the next day walking out of Porto was Jamie's actual birthday. And we had decided to walk uh, to Viaro Valerenjo. And there is an old monastery there that's been turned into a hostel. And while we were checking in, the the hospitalero um, asked Jamie how old. Well, we he asked us all how old we were. And Jamie just mentioned, she goes, well, I turned 61 today. And um, he just you know, is making his notations and everything. And that was the only place that had ever asked us that no one else had ever asked us our age, but he did. And, um, so it ended up being, and this, this place is a little bit out of the way and everything was shut down that night because, uh, it was some sort of holiday. And so, um, he, he told us I said that there were really no restaurants nearby that was going to be open so that they were going to do a big community meal for everyone that was staying there. And um, I don't know how many extra volunteers he got in to come cook this wonderful meal outside. Um, but he also sent someone to a next town to buy this big sheet cake. And they had they wished Jamie a happy birthday and sang to her and then had her serve all of the pilgrims this dessert <laughs> and uh they had her give a little speech and she said it was the most memorable birthday she ever had so we did not get to go before jamie's 60th birthday but her 61st birthday in both porto and the day after was the most memorable birthday she's ever had <laughs> what a great story i love asking people that at the end of the interview and man that you have delivered chat that was a great story and a wonderful interview too. Thank you, Chad, for your love and kindness. And I hope that huge heart of yours keeps beating strong and loud for years and years to come because you have so much joy to give. I've been blessed to have had the opportunity to talk with you. Buen Camino, my friend. Thank you, Dan. Buen Camino. Well, what about that? Uh, I sometimes wonder and often thank my lucky stars for having the opportunity to do this every week. Um, and sometimes I do two or three interviews in a weekend and it's lunchtime on a Monday here. Chad was speaking to me Sunday afternoon in Idaho. and You don't expect when you chat to somebody that you're going to laugh and cry and be inspired and, and just be so proud to be part of a community that's all about love and kindness just wonderful my guest this week the american pilgrim chad estes a hospice chaplain it was the american writer barbara de angelis who said love and kindness are never wasted they always make a difference they bless the one who receives them and they bless you the giver thanks for your company this week and every week until next week i'm dan mullins buen camino somewhere